The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture series is presented to a live audience and provides insight into leadership and war fighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us educate future military leaders and the public. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this presentation are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the Army Heritage and Education Center. Ladies and gentlemen, today is February 18th, 2021, and on behalf of the Director of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, Mr. Jeffrey Mengelsdorf and the entire staff of the USAHEC and the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the 2021 Perspectives Lecture Series. We welcome listeners from all over the world to tonight's live stream lecture event, which is made possible by the Army Heritage Center Foundation. For our Q&A session tonight, uh, please post questions to the Q&A section and our team will curate the questions to ask our speaker at the end of the program. Uh, the USAHEC and the US Army War College sponsor the Perspectives Lecture Series, which is a seasonal lecture program that provides a discussion of current and historical topics critical to the understanding and practice of strategic leadership. Consisting of a spring and fall season, our four lectures uh, are of four lectures each. Perspective seasons highlight a particular theme important to the study of the military profession. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my great honor to introduce tonight's speaker. Dr. David Danks is the L.L. Thurstone Professor of Philosophy and Psychology and head of the Department of Philosophy at Carnegie Mellon University, where he researches the intersection of philosophy, cognitive science, and machine learning. In particular, Dr. Danks has examined the ethical, psychological, and policy issues around AI and robotics in transportation, healthcare, privacy, and security. He is also the chief ethicist of CMU's Block Center for Technology and Society, co-director of CMU's Center for Informed Democracy and Social Cybersecurity, and SGE for the ethics line of effort of the National Security Commission on AI as well as the recipient of numerous prestigious awards. Ladies and gentlemen, I present Dr. David Danks. Uh, thank you so much, Sarah, uh, for that very kind introduction. Um, and thank you everybody for, for joining this evening or this morning or afternoon, wherever it is that, uh, that you might be at the moment. Uh, one of the real changes of the times we're living in is of course that I'm doing this from my home only about a three-hour drive away from the Army War College and USA, uh, USA HEC. Um, and unfortunately, I'm not able to be there in person, uh, but hopefully things are getting better uh, every day. So um, thank you for joining tonight. I wanted to, to talk tonight about um, an issue that is really, at this point, I think, um, hopefully widespread enough that people are not going to be surprised by the general topic, but perhaps uh, some of the things I talk about will be a little bit surprising. And that is what we might think of as the topic of ethical AI, ethics and AI, responsible AI. Uh, it goes under many different terms. But the idea is that there's a growing recognition that we need to not simply have uh, cool technology. We need to not just sit back and think to ourselves, you know, we could do that with technology, so we might as well, um, but instead start to think about what it is that we want our technology to achieve, what it is to responsibly and ethically use AI systems, and, um, and in particular, to think about this, I think, in the context of high-stakes decision-making is particularly critical. And so in that regard, I think uh, uses or potential uses of uh, AI systems in military applications are uh, particularly 
striking and important for us to think about. So this is an area that personally uh, I've been working on for um, quite a while now is thinking about when is it ethical? When is it legal? When is it appropriate? And importantly, these are three different questions, ethical, legal, appropriate, um, to use AI or other kinds of autonomous technologies in war fighting settings. And so what I want to talk to you about tonight is some of the um, ideas that have emerged from this thinking, try to connect them back to some of the very practical challenges that I think face people in the military uh, and in defense organizations more generally, um, and perhaps give you a somewhat different spin on these ideas than, than you might find just by looking uh, in the everyday newspaper. And I bring up the newspaper because actually just yesterday, um, we see this headline on the Washington Post magazine. Can computer algorithms learn to fight wars ethically? Uh, it's, I'm not going to talk about this particular piece, but I thought it was really quite striking that just yesterday, uh, we have a piece in you know, the largest newspaper in our nation's capital, looking at exactly these questions, of uh, the intersection of ethics, AI, and military applications. Uh, this focused on, you know, a particular way of thinking about autonomous weapons. Uh, I'm happy to talk in the Q&A about my thoughts about the article if you're curious. Um, but I think it just shows that right now there is very much a kind of pressing need to start to think about the use of these advanced technologies in defense organizations and in particular in the U.S. Department of Defense. Uh, these technologies are being rapidly developed and deployed in many countries, in many nations, militaries, uh, and ours is no exception. And so uh, it's important that we start to think about how it is that we can do this in an ethical and responsible way. All right, so what am I going to do over the next 40-ish uh, minutes? I am by training a philosopher, so it may go on a bit longer than that, but we'll, we'll try to keep it on the 40 range. Um, is So we have plenty of time for questions. Is really, a, I want to go through four different pieces. The first is I want to talk a bit about what is AI, because this term gets used in a lot of different ways and is frequently used in ways that are um, not actually accurate for what modern AI has become, what over the last 20 to 25 years uh, the, the actual research and development enterprise has become. I then want to ask, what is it to even think about having responsible or ethical or moral AI? I'm going to use the term responsible AI for the most part today, uh, not because I think responsible is somehow a special word and you know it's different than ethical, but I find responsible to be a, a term that actually um, is very neutral. Sometimes when I talk about ethical AI, people have very deep preconceptions about what that means. Responsible AI uh, is just intended to be a somewhat more neutral term. I will mention it's also the term that is frequently used within the US Department of Defense. So that's a convenient connection to the world that many of you uh, are in in your everyday lives. I'm then gonna ask the question of, well, all right, given how I'm gonna characterize responsible AI, how can we hopefully get this? And here, one of the challenges is going to be that there are lots and lots of frameworks and principles and ideas that are out there for how to get more ethical or more responsible uses of AI. And so what I'm gonna do is try to uh, dig through that a little bit to really get down to the question of, 
if you're somebody building these systems, if you're somebody who's tasked with using these systems, if you're somebody who's tasked with analyzing or procuring these systems, what does it mean to try to get responsible AI? Because I can tell you high level principles all day long, that's not necessarily going to tell you what you should do. I mean, the most famous example of this perhaps in the last 20 years in technology is Google's original slogan, don't be evil. A really wonderful sentiment. I mean, I, I think we would all endorse that idea that we don't want our companies to be evil. We don't want our employees or our warfighters to be evil. But what does don't be evil mean? As, as most of you, perhaps even all of you are going to know, uh, ethics education doesn't happen easily. It takes a lot of time and effort um, and dedication to come to understand what it is to do ethical decision-making. And so we need to ask this question about the development of AI systems. We can't just offer up a few principles and then assume that that's going to get us what we want. And then I'm gonna finish by, by looking at the role of the US Department of Defense over the last uh, about 12, 10 to 12 years in really helping to shape actually many of the debates and discussions that are happening, not just about responsible AI in military or defense settings or security settings, but actually about uh, what it is to have ethical and responsible AI in many other settings. So for example, in healthcare right now, we are seeing the widespread development and even use of uh, AI diagnostic systems that can look at, for example, an MRI and try to figure out what's wrong with a patient from that image. And in many cases outperform uh, most human doctors. Well, the, interestingly, the debates about ethical and responsible uses of AI in healthcare are informed and have, well, have been and are continuing to be informed by actually debates that started in defense and security settings and led in some cases by folks at the US Department of Defense. Um, so it's been, I think, an interesting case where uh, people often, people outside of the military often think of military uses as sort of a special case. That's the, that's the weird state that we don't want to end up in, namely warfare. Um, and so oftentimes uh, innovations come later to those settings. Uh, we're seeing really the reverse of that here. And I think it's important to understand the role of the US Department of Defense. So without further ado, let's, let's dive in and start with the first part. Um, what is AI? So many of you perhaps think of AI um, as HAL from 2001, uh, a very old movie, or perhaps The Terminator or any number of other systems that are what we would now refer to as having artificial general intelligence. They are human-like in their ability to interact with the world and understand the world around them. They make autonomous decisions. That, that, that's what AI is really aiming for. Excuse me. And you might even think that is still the case, that that still is the goal of AI. If you think about something like um, the now defunct Uber autonomous cars that are tested here on the streets of Pittsburgh. Those seem like they're artificial general intelligences. They are, of course, not capable of cooking or you know, reading in the traditional way that we think of reading a book, um, but they have to be able to recognize street signs and understand where pedestrians are. So they seem to have a general intelligence. But what's actually striking is how unusual in modern AI systems, things like autonomous cars really are. These are the kinds of things that are far more common in modern day AI settings. 
So in the upper right there, we have um, uh, Mayhem, which is an autonomous AI cyber defense and offense system. Uh, it's a system that is capable of both protecting cyber systems and uh, infiltrating and exfiltrating uh, information from adversary systems. It is entirely autonomous. You plug it into a network, you press go and the human walks away. And uh, just a few years ago, this, this particular version of, of Mayhem uh, actually came in, I believe, 12th at the World Hacking Championships. Uh, that is to say, a system entirely on its own with no human intervention did better than uh, all but the very best hacking teams in the world. Um, the middle part there is a system that was developed for the city of San Francisco to do predictive policing, to do hotspot prediction, to figure out where are there areas that are likely to, in which we are likely to see elevated crime risk. Uh, this system was never deployed, but it's a screenshot from the system that was developed for the city, uh, for the police department there. Um, and, you know, it, it takes in historical data of where crimes occur and says, here are areas uh, that are likely to see crime in the near future. Um, I think this one was a six hour time window. On the lower left, that's actually an AI therapist um, that is able to go up to about a 20 minute session entirely autonomously with a human patient. Uh, so is able to do a certain kind of um, a certain kind of therapy. Uh, it's not licensed in the normal ways, um, and it turns out to uh, not work very well, except for one very specific class of, of individuals. But nonetheless, it's a system that is intended to be able to do a kind of AI autonomous virtual therapy. Now, what's notable about, in particular, Mayhem and the predictive policing system, but actually also the AI therapist, is that these are not at all intended to be general intelligence systems. So the predictive policing system, all it is supposed to do is predict what's going to happen probably in terms of crime in the city of San Francisco in the next, say, six hours. It's not designed to figure out where police should go. It's just predicting what is likely to happen. Um, mayhem is quite sophisticated in terms of cyber defense and cyber offense, but it is incredibly restricted. All it does is cyber defense and cyber offense. It doesn't do really anything other than that. And in particular, what we see over the last 20 to 25 years is that there has been a steady and, and actually quite significant shift in most research and development of AI away from trying to build systems that have a general intelligence and instead to building systems that have one clear task and they are optimized to do that one task. And they're not optimized or even designed or even capable of doing anything else. So you could train me to do cyber defense and cyber offense, but I'm still going to be capable of driving a car, uh, acting as a therapist perhaps for somebody, or at least a, a friendly ear, or looking at the world around me and trying to predict what's going to happen. I can do all of those things. You can do all of those things. That's the epitome of general intelligence. We are capable of an enormous number of tasks. We can solve problems we have never encountered before. And in the last 25 years, AI has really shifted away from trying to succeed at that. And instead has shifted to saying, let's pick one thing and make systems that are exceptionally good at that one thing. 
whether it be prediction of crime or being able to uh, respond to uh, perceived emotions in a client in ways that get the that can elicit more interaction from the client, which is basically what the therapist does. Now you might be saying, well, okay, but what do these tasks look like? Well, this is the particular way that I think about the seven. I think of it in terms of sort of seven different tasks. That there are AI systems that all they do is sense, particular edge computing senses, uh, edge computing systems. So if you think about a distributed sensor network on a, on a battlefield, um, that system might be incredibly intelligent in its sensing, but it's not making any decisions at all. It's really just trying to do that one task. Or you could have systems that are, are perceptual systems. That is, they take the sensor input, what is sensed from the world, and can make sense of it. Right? That's a tank, that's an airplane, that's a school bus. Learning systems that take information from the world and can figure out what's going on, at least within a restricted space. Reasoning to then take what is learned and do something with it to make predictions about the world. Planning, generating plans of how you might be able to move forward to succeed at your goals, deciding which goal to go after and how to do it, which plan should I follow, and then acting on that in the sense of a robotic system, for example. And the interesting shift that's happened is that I would argue most AI systems today only do a couple of these things. Now, autonomous vehicles are a little bit interesting because, in part because they are still trying to do all seven of these. But Mayhem does basically learning, planning, and deciding. That's it. It doesn't really perceive in any interesting sense. Uh, it does do a little bit, but but not in the way that we think of perception of you know looking to figure out that that, that something is a tank versus uh, a, a large SUV from a distance. I don't know. You can tell I'm not good sometimes to come up with examples. Um, and and so what we find is that AI is not what people typically think, and that's particularly relevant as we start to think about things like say autonomous weapons or planning systems that try to um, help plan potential uh, tactical maneuvers in a battle space. And these are systems that exist now, um, not always with widespread deployment, but the systems are limited in what they do. They are optimized to solve one problem or a very small set of problems incredibly well. But if you move outside of the space of problems that they're designed for, they are either useless or will perform quite poorly in many cases. And I think maybe the, the, the ultimate example of this is from a couple of years ago, um, which was AlphaGo and now AlphaZero, which are the world's best Go players. And they're entirely autonomous computer systems. And, you know, I mean, the, the standard observation is that when AlphaGo beat Lee Sedol, at the time, the number two Go player in the world, what happens is AlphaGo wins, Lee Sedol gets up, walks over, shakes the hands of the developers, goes home to his family, um, is able to drive. Meanwhile, AlphaGo uh, just gets turned off because all it can do is play Go. And actually all it can do is play Go on a standard Go board. If you change the board at all or change the rules slightly, AlphaGo is not very good anymore, right? So AI systems are incredibly powerful because they're optimized for a particular task, but they are also narrow and in some cases brittle 
precisely because they're optimized for a single task. And it's important for us to bear that in mind as we think about what it is to do this, to, to do AI development and use responsibly. So what is responsible use or responsible AI, given what I just said about the nature of AI? Well, there's actually two different ways that we can think about wanting responsible AI, two ways in which AI could be responsible or irresponsible, could be ethical or unethical. And the first is, and I'm gonna talk in a bit of detail about each. The first way is that technology, AI systems, actually sometimes make ethical choices. They will sometimes make decisions that have a very significant ethical component to them. Now, not all of them do. Uh, if I'm building an AI system to manage server loads uh, on my server farm, it's unlikely that it is going to be making any decisions that are ethically loaded or that are ethically important. It's possible, for example, if, if there's something about the sensitivity of the data or I'm, you know, I'm in a healthcare setting where I need to be careful about uh, whether, I whether some uh, servers come offline. But nonetheless, um, it's not probably making very many ethical choices. Other kinds of technology, though, do make the very explicit ethical choices. And this is what I think people usually have in mind when they think about responsible AI. The second, though, way in which we need to think about responsible AI is by recognizing that AI systems and technology, they don't just sometimes implement values, they always implement ethical values. So if you have in your mind that technology is value neutral, technology is, it's just a tool, it's just, a, it's just ones and zeros, uh, I wanna to try to convince you that that's not the right way to think about AI and other kinds of technologies. And that it's important for us to recognize the kinds of value decisions that are uh, made in the development and deployment of technology. So let's start first with this issue of choices. Uh, what is the sense in which responsible AI involves making ethical choices at least sometimes? Well, the obvious case um, is to think about autonomous weapon systems. So systems that can independently do targeting decisions. Uh, and clearly those targeting decisions are at least sometimes going to have an ethical component to them. So as a kind of concrete example, consider the Israeli harpy or the harp. Uh, this is a loitering munition. It's launched, it loiters for, I believe, between six and 12 hours. If it detects a particular radar signature, it uh, basically dive by that radar signature located in an acceptable area. So you can say there are no-go zones. Um, it dive bombs and detonates just over top of the radar signature. It was developed by the Israelis uh, because um, there would be missile strikes uh, sent into Israel that would be done where the radar gets turned on. Very short time later, the missile is fired, then the radio, radar is turned off. And in that period, there, is very, there isn't enough time, it wasn't enough time for the Israeli army to respond. And so the idea was to have a harpy or a harp loitering over an area, the radar gets turned on and before the missile strike can occur, it dive bombs, detonates and takes out the radar system. Now, the obvious way in which this is making ethical choices is imagine there's a radar system sitting right next to an office building. Now, it might be perfectly acceptable for the HARP to go after that radar installation. That may be perfectly acceptable ethically. Um, it also might be unacceptable ethically. Uh, I think anyone who um, has been in these kinds of decision-making situations is well aware of the ethical import 
of a decision to, for example, do a strike, in this case, essentially a missile strike, against something that is right next to an office building. Um, so it's not that we can just blanket say it is never ethical for a HAROP to detonate uh, over a radar system that is right next to an office building. Um, but it, isn't, it also is not the case that we can say it is always ethical for it to do so, or that we will always have been able to properly plan the go, no-go uh, uh, geo regions, the spatial regions that the system is, is and is not allowed to, uh, to operate in. Uh, we might get it wrong, or uh, things might have changed on the ground if our intelligence is not as good as it should have been. Right? So this system is autonomously making a decision. When I launch the system, I don't know if it's ever going to detonate. It's entirely possible it will loiter for six hours and then it will come back because nothing ever happens. The system is making a decision. I'm obviously making a decision to deploy the system, but the HAROP is going to make an ethically loaded decision. It is, we want those kinds of systems, autonomous weapons systems, autonomous cyber offense systems. We want them to make the right kinds of choices. The problem that we face, and this is a very general problem that we face, is um, that actually AI systems usually don't think about the world in the ways that we do. So um, we like to think that AI systems perceive and understand the world in the same way as us. But the reality is that in many cases they do not. So to take a simple example from outside of a military setting, um, autonomous cars do not perceive the world in terms of other cars and pedestrians and bicycles and so on. They perceive the world, perceive the world, understand the world in terms of bounding uh, regions, regions that are bound together um, that they cannot move into and that those regions shift over time. Now you might say, wait a second, that's a really abstract way of saying it, but that's the point. For an autonomous car, the world is not, oh, there's a pedestrian there. The world is, there is a region of space that I am not allowed to go into, and I can predict how that region is going to move over time. This is why, for example, there is the, the standard worry about autonomous vehicles, about, for example, if you're driving on a street and you see a soccer ball roll into the street, you're probably going to slow down because you know that that soccer ball is an indication that there's probably kids around and there might be a kid who darts out to get the soccer ball right, you know, right as you're approaching it. So you know to slow down, an autonomous car doesn't know anything because it doesn't know about soccer balls and kids and all of the world knowledge that we bring to bear when we're driving every single day. It just knows the world in terms of, I perceive a region I'm not allowed to go into. Now we could try to teach the autonomous car to perceive the world the way we do. But that would require us to significantly change the ways that we, uh, that we program and develop these AI systems. And so in particular, when we think about building responsible AI systems that can make ethical choices, we are actually faced with a very difficult problem of we can either restrict the systems to think about the world as we do, in which case we might be able to sort of build the ethics into them, but at a cost because now the systems aren't necessarily going to be as accurate uh, because we're forcing them to conform to how we view the world. Or 
we can use the methods we use right now to optimize the performance of the systems. But then there's no way for us to sort of after the fact ensure that the system will make the ethical choices we think it ought to make. There's no way, as I put it here, to just hard code the ethics into them. Instead, we need to build the ethics in from the ground up. Now, what does it mean to build the ethics in from the ground up? Well, that points to the second way in which we need to think about AI as being responsible or not, ethical or not. And that is the way in which technology, and in particular AI systems, embody and implement ethical values. So let me give an example. Um, you'll notice I'm using autonomous vehicles here. I'm trying to, to use ones that I think it, it are very salient, um, and particularly here in Pittsburgh, at least, these are very salient because we're one of the test in testing areas. This is uh, one of the um, Argo vehicles uh, that is sitting on, you know, it's on one of the bridges here in Pittsburgh. Um, but it's also useful to think about autonomous, uh, sorry, about autonomous vehicles because they are a major potential use case for militaries. So most people who are not in the military leap to thinking about AI systems that are weaponized. So they think about the autonomous weapon systems that were, we discussed on the previous slide. But if you talk to people in the military, what, what I always find striking is how many of them talk about all the other uses of, of AI and robotics. So they talk about using autonomous vehicles for transporting materials, particularly in hazardous areas. So you don't have to risk uh, human lives to transport material from point A to point B. Or they think about AI systems that can optimize logistics for transport. Or they think about AI systems for um, doing more sophisticated intelligence surveillance reconnaissance, ISR. Uh, we have massive sensor networks around the world, and it is a challenge to make sense of everything that's coming in through those sensor networks. And AI is a very important tool. So um, although I'm talking about autonomous vehicles, this is absolutely a use case that the US military is quite openly considering right now. Uh, both in terms of uh, land-based vehicles, such as um, trucks, and also uh, seagoing vehicles, um, such as various kinds of boats and submersibles. Um, sorry to bring up a Navy example with, uh, with, with Army folks. I apologize for that. Um, so what's the sense in which an autonomous vehicle implements values? I mean, that seems weird, right? It, it's a car. I mean, when I think about the car that I have sitting in my garage right now, I don't think of that as implementing values, it's it's just a car. Or if I think about a hammer, I don't think about a hammer as implementing values, it's, it's just a hammer. So what's the sense in which this implements values? Well, let me give an example here of, of a really important issue that comes up with autonomous cars. On the one hand, we want, we clearly all want our autonomous cars to follow the speed limit. Right? I mean, we, we don't want them going out and deliberately breaking the law. That seems like a bad thing for an autonomous vehicle to do. We also want our autonomous vehicles to be safe. We want them to um, minimize the probability of accidents. That seems like something we really want autonomous vehicles to do as well. Minimizing the probability of an accident, that's a good thing. Okay. Now, what you can't necessarily see from this graph on the right, but what it's showing is the probability of an accident as a function of your relative speed compared to the vehicles around you. And in particular, what we see is that the safest, in the sense of minimizing the probability of an accident, 
speed to drive at is slightly slower than the speed of the vehicles around you. And most people who've driven kind of have that intuition. I mean, if you're driving a lot slower than everyone else, that is actually risky, right? People come up behind you and have to slam on their brakes and there's a chain reaction from that or they, they get frustrated and they have to swerve around you. So I think most of us, are we intuitively get the idea that if you want to minimize the chance of an accident, you know, drive basically the same speed as everyone around you. But of course, um, we also all know, depending on where you've driven, I'm going to assume all of you have had the experience of, for example, being in a speed limit 25 zone where everyone's going 45. Or if you've ever been in Southern California, you might have the experience of being in a speed limit 55 and everyone's doing 85. Or everyone's doing 20, depending on how bad the traffic is that day. But nonetheless, people are not going the speed limit. They're going much, much faster. So what do we want our autonomous vehicle to do? I pose that question because the car doesn't care. This, this Argo car, yeah, you can program it to do either one. It is essentially trivial to do one or the other of these, to have it, it has to recognize the speed limit anyway. Um, so you can tell it, all right, don't go more than about five miles an hour, say over the speed limit, you know, give a little margin there. Um, you can also, it has to detect all the vehicles around it. Of course, remember it just detects those as fast moving areas I'm not allowed into. Um, but so it could speed match. It, it really is technologically, either one works. So which one do we want it to do? And we have to pick just to get this vehicle to drive one block. This isn't some weird edge case. This isn't some unusual situation that we might hope never arises. We all know this kind of situation arises all the time. Everyone around you is going 40 and it's a 25. Everyone around you is going 50 and it's a 35. Right? We're, we know these are not weird circumstances. But whatever decision is made, by the technologist, by the developer, by the roboticist, whatever decision she makes, she is putting value into the system. Because now this vehicle is going to behave in accordance with those values. And in general, values and ethics, they're always part of AI systems. And so what we need to ask is we need to ask, are the right values in those systems? Are the right ethical considerations in the system, in its very functioning, in terms of what it prioritizes? Um, if any of you have had experience with you know, machine learning or AI systems, one of the things you do is, you, you, as I've said before, you optimize these systems. You optimize them for performance. But what you're doing when you optimize a system is you're telling the system, this is what matters namely whatever it is you're trying to optimize. So if you optimize for accuracy, what you're doing is you're telling your system, here is what you should value. You should value accuracy above everything. And so by the ways that we train and develop these systems, we are actually teaching them, here's what matters in the world. We might not realize that that's what we're doing. Um, most computer scientists don't talk this way, but nonetheless, that's exactly what we're doing. So how do we then think about responsible AI? I mean, if, if when we were looking at it in terms of just the choices, there was a chance that we might have been able to think about it in terms of the ones and zeros. But if what's going on is the values that we put into the system and making you know, responsible AI is partially about making sure the right values get into the system, 
Well, in that case, there's no chance of looking at it just as ones and zeros. We can't just look at the end of the process. And so when we think about this, I think it's important to recognize all the places that we are making decisions that influence whether what we build is responsible and ethical. So I think of the technology development process in this following cartoon way. And I want to emphasize it's, of course, a cartoon, but I think it's still useful for thinking through this. So for those of you who may not be familiar with technology, you probably are thinking about tech development as the development box, right? It's the, it's the coders sitting in their cubicles. It's the roboticist um, in, the, in, the, in the high bay uh, building the system and you know, really plugging the servos onto the axle so that it can do the movements, right? I mean, that is probably what's coming to your mind. But we actually need to start all the way back at identification. So the first step in any technology development is identifying what's the problem we're trying to solve. Are we trying to solve the problem of optimal planning for uh, moving material around uh, a battle space? Are we trying to optimize or solve the problem of um, uh, detection and recognition of uh, adversary actions? Um, despite their efforts at deception and so forth, right? So identification is about what are we trying to use technology to solve? Design is where we say, okay, well, given that we're trying to solve this problem, what are all the constraints that we face? What are the things we're not allowed to do? What are the things we must do? What, is, what data do we have available? What sensors do we have to avail available to us? And we need to think about all of these different constraints before we can actually start building anything. Now, once we've built it, we then have to figure out how we're going to deploy it. Where is it going to go? Uh, are we going to develop an autonomous vehicle here in Pittsburgh and then deploy it to London or Sydney, where of course they drive on the other side of the road? That would not go well. And it's not that it wouldn't go well, it's not, and the failure is not because of anything we did up until the deployment stage. We did it all correctly, but you know, if we deploy it wrong, then we're going to have failures. We're going to have failures of, um, uh, we're going to have ethical failures. And in particular, also when we think about the use of the system. So there's deployment about where it goes, but then, you know, humans are actually going to be using it. And maybe all the human does is say, okay, now is a time that it's okay to use the system. But that's another place where values enter the picture. And then in practice, in most tech systems, we, do a, we continue to refine the system, we revise the system, we update the system, we go to the next version of it. And that can feed back into actually any of the previous steps in this sort of cartoon pipeline. Now, the reason I wanna make sure to bring out all six of these is because in fact, there are ethical value-centered questions that have to be answered at every single step in this process. So when I talk about responsible AI as process, not product, what I mean is if we actually want to have responsible and ethical technologies that can be used in appropriate ways, we need to be asking questions all the way along the process in an intentional way that acknowledges that we're bringing values into our technology when we do this. We are putting our ethics into the technology when we answer questions like, which values should I prioritize, following the speed limit or minimizing the probability of an accident, to use a design example. Or when we think about use and we think about, all right, who has oversight 
of the technology? Who watches it? And is that person properly trained and empowered to step in if the system starts to behave irresponsibly? So this is, these are the kinds of things that it's really critical for us to be able to ask right now while our systems are being uh, built out. Right? These are not things that you can do at the very end. You can't make these decisions um, after the fact. If you've decided that your system is going to solve a particular kind of problem, then you need to have that system actually be built in a way that it's capable of solving a problem. And that's going to mean that it can't actually solve a different kind of problem. Right? So this is the, uh, you know, it, it's one thing if I have a hammer, but if what I have are a bunch of screws around, then that hammer is not very useful to me. Even hammers and screwdrivers are designed for a particular purpose, for a particular kind of problem. And when you use things inappropriately, we get into trouble. All right, so at this point, um, if I've been successful in convincing you of, of all of this, you're sitting here going, okay, I get it. Ethics and responsible use, this is just everywhere when we're talking about AI technologies. This is not something that shows up at the end. This isn't something I can do a, a one hour training on, but doesn't that mean that we're just in deep trouble? I mean, how do we do anything at all? Well, that is actually the thing that I think right now, lots of people are starting to try to tackle. What do we need to change about our processes? What do we need to change about our systems and ways of developing? so that we do it in a responsible and ethical way. We can't just come after the fact. So we can't just use um, traditional performance standards. Right? So these are the kinds of things that we do for you know, a brake system in my car. Um, there's performance standards, right? it has to be able to stop the vehicle in, within this distance under these conditions. But the problem is that when we have AI systems, we have what we call an open environment, weird stuff can happen. We have an intelligent system, it can do surprising things. And we have a dynamic adversary. The other side doesn't sit still, but they're going to attempt to break our system or to do things that really mess us up. So we can't just use traditional performance standards because what it is to behave ethically or responsibly is going to be context specific and context sensitive in ways that we can't capture using traditional kinds of performance measures. Um, Traditional regulations that have been used for things like arms control are also insufficient. So we might have hoped, well, we might have thought, well, you know, we handled this problem with, say, well, handled this problem. We've tried to handle this problem with things like chemical weapons, right, where the responsible use of them is, is ensured through various kinds of control regimes and treaties. The problem is that when we think about AI systems, there are multiple uses for them. So for the exact same code, I can actually use it for multiple purposes, or the same learning system can be used for many different tasks. These are systems that learn from their environments. So even if I've done everything right, once it's deployed, it might change. And these aren't like nuclear weapons where the materials are actually very difficult to create or transport. Uh, we could have somebody come from, you know, uh, uh, another country come to Carnegie Mellon for six weeks in the summer, and they would pretty much be able to build uh, any standard autonomous weapon system you could imagine. 
Um, it wouldn't be very good. It wouldn't behave responsibly, but they could do it, which means um, we can't control this. I mean, the notion of export control on AI doesn't really make sense uh, because it is much more about ideas and software and frameworks rather than actual stuff that we can control. So we're going to have to have some kind of a layered approach to doing this. We can't just think that there's one way to get responsible AI. And so what we need to do is think at every one of those six stages, how do we change the practices? Not just come up with nice principles, but how do we change practice? Well, how can we do that? Well, here's just some examples. Uh, some of these are ones I've personally been involved in. Others are, are ones that are, for example, active in the DOD right now. So one thing we might do is we might have uh, mechanisms in place to do early detection of problematic cases, what we called in this project ethical triage. So this is a project that isn't, uh, it's not in the military case, it's in the healthcare setting, but the idea was, could we develop a tool so that data analysts, data scientists at Seattle Children's Hospital would be able to recognize when they should call and talk to somebody, when there might be an ethical issue versus when there might not be. Um, we can ensure that there's human oversight. So one of the problems, this is from the autonomous uh, vehicle setting, but in general, it's a problem for any computer vision system, is that they're actually pretty easy to defeat. So um, this is an example of where by putting some tape on a stop sign, if you look at the lower right, those black and white pieces of tape on a stop sign, if you put tape on the stop sign in that way, you will convince essentially any autonomous vehicle currently being trained um, that it's a speed limit 45 sign. We humans are not fooled by these. Um, there also are plenty of examples if you just type adversarial uh, AI turtle rifle is another great one where somebody uh, was able to change um, imperceptibly, like we humans can't tell, but change the input to a classification system to make it think that a bunch of pictures of turtles are rifles. And you could go the other way. Now, these kinds of adversarial attacks against our sensor systems, um, sometimes those might be detectable. If you are doing surveillance and suddenly your AI system says, hey, there are a bunch of people walking around with turtles, you're probably going to say, wait a second, I, I want to look in on but of course they could have set up the adversarial attack, not so that it classified rifles as turtles, but so that it classified rifles as backpacks or rifles as um, walking sticks. And in that way, you might end up with a system that looks like it's doing everything right, but in fact, we're getting a very misleading picture of the world. So when there can be these kinds of adversarial attacks, it's important to maintain human oversight in the use phase of things. Right, so the first one is much more about the design phase. This one is much more use phase. Um, in the refining and development phases, both, we need to understand what our models are doing. So this is an effort of, uh, this is a screenshot of a model card, what we call model cards developed by Google. Um, and model cards are actually currently uh, being very slowly, tentatively rolled out in parts of the DoD as a way to understand and record what values and performance tasks are built into the models, the AI systems that we're using. Um, we need to continually audit our systems. So if we think about refinement, if we think about designing um, and deploying, we need to have systems in place to be able to do watch 
over our algorithms, to be able to keep an eye on what they're doing. Um, and so much more, right? So this is just, I give here four examples, but in fact, this is a very widespread effort across both academia, industry, and uh, organizations like the DOD. Uh, active collaborations to try to find actual practices that lead to more responsible and more ethical AI. And I do want to emphasize that the DOD has been leading a lot of this. So the kind of back history here dates back uh, the sort of a, a seminal moment in uh, people thinking about the ethics of AI is actually um, uh, Directive 3000.09 uh, developed by Paul Shari when he was um, in the policy shop at the Pentagon, a former, armor former Army Ranger. Um, and it was developed in 2012, and it basically covers the autonomy, the, the question of what kinds of autonomy are allowed in weapon systems. And the thing about 3000.09 is, of course, it's not purely about AI, it's about autonomy, which is a, an importantly different notion. But what it does and did at the time is it was one of the very first codified policies, explicit policies that talked about what we were trying, what anyone was trying to achieve through the use of autonomy in AI. So this predates by about five to six years, essentially almost all of the AI ethics principles that have emerged. So you know, Google, Microsoft, uh, PwC, Deloitte, um, you know, so if you go on down the line, everybody's got their AI ethics principles now. And 3009 shows up five, six years before any of those. And, and I think it actually is a very, it was a very important step in trying to explore how we could develop directives and policies that actually apply to these kinds of high stakes uses of AI systems. Back in a time, I mean, you know, Paul's been very open about when he was doing this, nobody really thought that these were coming anytime soon. Uh, but in fact, they came much faster. Uh, autonomous weapons, or at least the possibility of autonomous weapons, came much faster than many expected. Um, that then led to an effort, uh, sort of spanning across 2018 to 19, by the Defense Innovation Board. They were asked by Congress slash the Pentagon to try to develop a set of principles or potential principles, proposed principles, for the Department of Defense in all of its uses of AI. Okay, so this, this was now an effort, a project um, that was not just about uh, autonomous weapons systems. It was also about, for example, um, the fact that the Department of Defense is one of the largest healthcare systems in the world. So I mentioned earlier, AI diagnostic systems. Well, the DOD is very interested in having AI diagnostic systems, particularly for the possibility of using them in the field. Well, we want to make sure that we're being responsible and ethical in our use of that kind of AI as well, not just autonomous weapons. Or the use of AI for performance evaluations. Many companies are now using AI systems for resume screening, but also for uh, performance evaluations. And we see this, for example, in, in Amazon. Uh, they are now grading the performance of most of their warehouse workers using, in part, AI systems. Well, if the DOD were to start doing that, to the best of my knowledge, the DOD is not yet doing that, let me just say that, but if the DOD were to start using AI systems to assist in performance evaluations, 
We would want that to be done ethically and responsibly as well. So the Defense Innovation Board went on a about 16 month journey uh, that involved close collaboration with members of the US military, but also an outreach effort uh, that engaged with literally hundreds of experts and thought leaders, uh, had a substantial amount of public comment that came in and resulted in a report that proposed a set of principles for the Pentagon to consider. And those principles were then uh, adopted almost exactly one year ago. I, I had forgotten that uh, we're coming up on the one year anniversary of Secretary Esper signing into uh, policy the five ethical principles for artificial intelligence, for the ethical and responsible use of AI within the Department of Defense. Uh, those are that the technology, the AI uses must be, um, it must be responsible in the sense that personnel uh, have to be able to exercise appropriate judgment and control over the system, a certain kind of control. It must be equitable. So it's important not to have biases in the system uh, of the kind that we are now recognizing are, are very common in algorithmic decision-making systems. It has to be traceable. We have to be able to figure out essentially um, why the system did what it did, perhaps after the fact. So we don't just want to have systems that go off and they behave and we have no idea why they're doing what they're doing. We want to be able to figure that out. And, and so in that sense, they need to be traceable. They need to be reliable. And um, in that sense, be able to uh, have clear uses and we know that they can succeed at those kinds of uses. And they have to be governable, okay? The notion of governable here is one in which we want to be able to actually be able to control and have the ability, for example, to turn off the system if we discover it's performing adversely or inappropriately. Okay. So these five principles come out. Now, you might be sitting here going, wait a second. One slide earlier, David was telling us that principles are not enough. We have to have practices. So how do we get to practices? Is the DOD doing anything on this? Or is the DOD still in principles land? Well, I, I'm happy to be able to tell you the DOD is actually a leader in terms of um, helping to develop practices. So uh, two of the main efforts here are, or main actors, I should say. One is the JAKE, the Joint AI Center, um, which is a joint center across all of the branches of the DOD, uh, formerly, originally headed by General Shanahan, um, but they're now on a, on a new, on a new uh, head, but also the Army AI Task Force, um, a part of the Army Futures Command. Uh, the AI Task Force is based here in Pittsburgh. That's not the only reason I mentioned, that's not why I'm mentioning them, but, um, or a big part of the task force is based here in Pittsburgh. Um, but actually the Army AI Task Force has been, uh, I will say, of the, of the efforts within the particular branches, particular components, um, they've really been leading the way in trying to find ways to bring ethical considerations to bring the principles into the practices of the task force itself to bring in these questions of ensure you know how do we ensure that the technology that's being built is going to be responsible equitable tra uh, traceable reliable governable how do how do we not have these just be words and slogans that we toss out but really translate it into practice now it's not perfect it's not there yet um, there's a lot of things that still remain to be done and a lot of efforts that are still underway. But I think it's, it's really, for me, um, exciting. It's an exciting time 
because I think we understand now as a community, or at least there's growing understanding in the community, um, that in fact we can do quite a lot to improve the likelihood that we will get ethical and responsible uses and development of AI technologies, um, that we don't just have to sort of hope that people are making good decisions, uh, but it's exciting because there still is a lot to be done. And it's a really um, powerful uh, opportunity uh, that I think the DOD is presenting and, and really quite frankly leading the way. And I, I promise you, I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to an audience uh, of folks who are probably sympathetic to the US Department of Defense. Um, I, I say this to any group I talk to. This When they say, who's leading the way in these efforts? I say, uh, on the industry side, it is um, the companies Salesforce and Microsoft are probably the two that are leading the way in terms of the big companies. Um, in terms of governments, and international organizations, the US DOD is right there um, at, at the very best, uh, among the very best. But there's still a lot that needs to be done and, and a lot of us are trying to, to help make that happen. So thank you for this. Um, I, as I predicted, went on much longer than I expected to, but uh, hopefully there were some interesting ideas in there for all of you. And I'm happy to switch to questions uh, now. So I'll stop the screen share. Um, all right. Uh, Thank you. Sarah, I don't know the best way to handle this. Do you want to read the questions and curate or should I? Yeah, no, I can go ahead and do that. Um, thank you, first of all. That was an amazing presentation. Um, I know you've given us all a lot to think about. Um, so uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and uh, read through these. Um, we're getting a lot of positive com comments. Um, so the first one, um, regarding the current restrictions on autonomous use of force, um, are the, is the US making the statement that no intelligence, e.g. torpedoes, rockets, et cetera, is more ethical than some or much, quote unquote, intelligence, AI-enabled autonomous systems? Uh, that, is a, that is a great question. Um, and and uh, it, points towards something that I, uh, I, I didn't necessarily go into detail on. One of the striking things about 3000.09, the, um, the autonomous uh, autonomy and weapons systems, is it quite deliberately does not ban the use of autonomy and weapons systems. Um, one of the things that I think has been a, a very consistent uh, principle, I'll use that term, um, from uh, the US military, and it's one that I think that, that I agree with and, and many others do, is that um, the use of, of smart weapons uh, in many cases actually is far more ethical. Um, if I have the ability to target one particular adversary and ensure that no one around that adversary is harmed, arguably I have an ethical obligation to use the smart weapon rather than just dropping a dumb one that causes an enormous amount of collateral damage. Um, that's been a longstanding uh, understanding in, in the, you know, in just war theory is you, you should be trying to minimize uh, collateral damage to the extent possible. So if I have a weapon system that can do that, I really should. Um, so importantly, it, it is not, the restrictions are not saying that no intelligence is better or more ethical than lots of intelligence. Um, at the same time, what the restrictions are trying to do is to ensure that when we use the intelligence systems, they are actually carrying out, they are implementing and, and satisfying commander's intent. So the big risk with autonomous systems is that I'll tell the system here, essentially, here's what I want you to do. But 
if we are not really careful about the interfaces we use with the systems and the ways we interact with our, uh, uh, these systems, it's, there are real possibilities of them doing something surprising that is not what we expected and it's not what the commander intended. And so the, the draw, I mean, I think in many ways, the guiding light of uh, at least the US DOD's positions in all of these debates has been, we should be using, I'm approximating here, and you know, if there are any JAGs in the, uh, in the audience, please don't be annoyed with me. Um, we should be using the smartest weapons we can, the best targeting systems we can, that still satisfy commander's intent. And what we don't know yet for most of the autonomous weapon systems is whether they will be able to satisfy commander's intent. And so that's where the restriction is coming in. But yeah, great, great question. Okay, great, thank you. Um, moving to the next one, and we've got a bunch of them in here, so I'm just gonna move down the line. Um, Sorry, I'll try to be quicker. <laughs> no, 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 you're fine, you're fine. And I, I believe um, we can actually have these uh, uh, recorded at the end as well. So um, anything that isn't answered, uh, I believe we can we can go ahead and do that as well. Um, so uh, we have one here. I worked on MLAI for INSCOM 2005 to 2011. Optimization is the opposite of ethics. Um, so, uh, Example, all of high value, get all of the high value targets is an optimization directive. Don't get all non-combatant uh, combatants is an ethical constraint. Min-max produces a weak and possibly cost inverse solution. Other than min-max, how do you incorporate the constraints? Yeah, good. That's a good question. So the, the first thing to say is, um, so obviously minimax is, is a way to do this. Um, I, I don't think, I, I want to push back though on the idea that optimization is the opposite of ethics. What I think you have in the example that's that's in this question um, about high value targets and non-combatants is uh, presumably non-combatants are very low value targets. In fact, hopefully negative value targets. Um, so in this sort of a case, it seems to me actually we might very well be able to assign values to the potential targets. Um, these are high value. These are lower negative value. These are ones that in fact we we want to make sure the system does not target. Um, and then we optimize over those values. So one possibility is if you can translate the ethical values into a similar kind of language, usually numbers, but a similar kind of language as your strategic or tactical values, your operational values, if we can get them all in the same language, then in fact, we can just do optimization over that joint set. Now, in practice, that often is not going to be possible. We may not be able to translate the ethical directives or ethical guidance into the same language as the operational values. Um, and there, uh, at the risk of, of sounding like I'm dodging the question, I'll simply say there are a lot of people working on this problem. And um, the two big ways that people try and solve it, uh, one is that you basically teach the system in a simulated environment. So you build the system without worrying about ethics, put it in a simulated environment. And as it does bad things, you basically, you know, you chastise it, you, you punish it, and it learns a second order function, which basically constrains uh, its, its behavior um, in line with what you've taught it is the, you know, don't do those wrong things. Um, the other uh, approach that people have tried to do is that they try to um, 
on the, on the front end, basically say there are certain behaviors that are not going to be permitted. And so they just put hard constraints on the optimization, much as, you know, I can put hard constraints on a, an optimization problem like this cannot cost more than $100 if I'm doing a standard design optimization. So you're right to raise the issue. It's a hard one. Um, but it is actually a one that I think we've got some some good techniques to try and solve. Okay. Um, next one is Professor Shannon Valor, a philosopher of technology, uh, has written on the phenomenon of moral de-skilling in the age of machines. How does the DoD avoid such moral de-skilling of its military service members if we offload ethical decisions to algorithms? Uh, yes, that's a great, that's a great issue. So, so what Shannon's getting at with, with that notion is, for those who may not know what the word sort of de-skilling means, so de-skilling is the idea that um, once upon a time I knew how to drive a manual transmission car, um, I still probably could do it, but I haven't driven one in a long time, so I am de-skilled. I have de-skilled with respect to driving a manual transmission car. I just haven't had to use all three, I haven't had to use three pedals in a while. Um, and so I've lost that skill. And anybody who has had skills uh, at some point in time that they didn't use for a while knows that skills can atrophy. And so what, what Valor is, what she's worried about is, um, well, if we start delegating ethical decisions, to machines, if the machines are making the ethical decisions, then am I as a human going to lose my capability of or my ability to make the right ethical decision? Because I'm just not getting the practice. Um, the ethical decision making on her view is, is a skill just like any other skill. And so if you don't practice it, you're going to, it's going to start to atrophy and you'll get worse at it. Um, Right now, I would argue, uh, I don't think that the DOD is explicitly trying to tackle this problem. Um, right now, the US DOD is not uh, deploying autonomous weapon systems that are making the kinds of targeting decisions that, um, that would lead to moral de-skilling, uh, potentially. It is one that I know people talk about and are aware of and worry about. Um, it's one, though, that actually shows up to a certain extent, even without AI. So if we think about um, remotely piloted drone systems, um, these are not necessarily sophisticated AI systems. There's a human controlling them, you know, piloting them uh, from a distance. Um, but we also know that that leads to, uh, it can lead to challenges for moral decision-making because now uh, you're engaging with the, the other, with the adversary solely through a video camera and that that can lead to the kinds of dehumanization that can lead to worsened ethical decisions. So I think uh, these kinds of issues are, I mean, I certainly have heard many discussions and been a part of some discussions with folks in the US military. I think they're very aware of it and very worried about it. Um, I just don't, I mean, I will say, I don't find people in the US military, I don't talk to anybody really, who's just like, yes, give us autonomous weapon systems. I don't wanna have to make these decisions. I just wanna throw a robot out there and turn away and walk away. Nobody that I talk to ever talks that way. Um, and, I, and I think that that's, that's an important background um, to have, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, next one is, how specifically does the AI task force guide development in the rest of Futures Command? Um, so I'm not actually going to be able to answer that one. I don't. I, I mean, I don't know the, the enough about the inner workings to be comfortable uh, answering that. Um, uh, my hope is that people in the rest of Futures Command are looking to 
what the AI task force is doing and saying that they're starting to develop some better practices. I'm not going to say best practices. We're still too early for that, but they're starting to develop some better practices and, and we can learn from them. I, I hope that's happening, but I, I'm afraid I don't actually know. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to combine two because they're along the same lines okay. here. Um, but uh, basically, the point being, uh, when do people become the weak link or what about the fallibility of humans? Um, yeah, um, so, so um, now we're into the world of the really hard ethical questions. Um, and, and that is exactly trying to think about whether there are decisions that we think are the province that should remain the province of humans. Are there certain decisions that we think, look, that just should not be delegated to a machine? Or do we think that, um, that what we're really dealing with is we should just be trying to get to the best decisions we can and not worrying about, about who exactly made the decision, the machine or the human? Um, now, the reason I frame it this way is because one of the things that I think is happening is as we're moving increasingly towards human machine teams, um, when that's done right, what we're able to do or what, you know, designers, human robot interaction, human computer interaction designers uh, can do is basically enable the human to do what the human is really good at and let the machine do what the machine's really good at. So right now, um, this is sort of a, a quick, this is a, a quick heuristic for you. If humans are good at something, machines are probably bad at it and vice versa. So machines are really good at precision, sustained vigilance, repetition, uh, optimizing, and finding very strange patterns in huge amounts of data. Those are all things humans are pretty bad at. We're just not good at these things. It's why you know we have accidents involving long-haul trucking, because it's just hard to keep focused for long periods of time. Um, on the other hand, humans are really good at recognizing that the context has changed, that feeling that something's just a little different here. We're incredibly good at creativity and analogical reasoning. So looking at a problem and going, I'm going to come up with a new solution that no one's ever tried before. We're good at, um, quite frankly, breaking the rules. Um, we look at systems, we look at problems and go, yeah, do I really have to follow what seem, I mean, not breaking the rules literally, but breaking the rules in the sense of recognizing new ways to tackle old problems or new ways to tackle challenges. Those are all things computers are very, very bad at. Um, they, right now, we are, don't have very good AI systems for doing transfer or for doing analogy or creativity. We just, those are still very, very early stages. So the best human machine and human computer systems, what they do is they, they let the human do what the human is really good at, recognizing, you know what, here is a context in which the right tool to use is this uh, smart cruise missile that is going to, I want to have it land right here. I'm not going to worry about the wind gusts that might happen. I'm going to let the onboard technology figure out how to handle that part because that's a level of precision I human am not going to be able to do with a joystick but I can be creative in my problem solving. I can recognize that, you know what? The people on this video are just moving in a slightly different way. Something weird is going on. I wanna hold off and wait and see. And if we can do this successfully, right? If we actually have appropriate teaming, then I would argue that, that the human does not become the fallible weak link. 
Um, what we've done is we've enabled the human to be the strong link in the way that, hu the way that only humans can be. And we let the machine be a strong link in the way that only machines can be. And it, it truly is the case, I think, that right now the best way of doing things is better than either individually. Um, so I, I'm a big proponent that we need to think about technology as augmenting, improving, uh, enabling, empowering humans, not as replacing. Because I think usually replacement, um, you get rid of the human in one way, but you, you pay a cost in another way. Um, looks like this one is a clarification question. Um, as I understand what you said, responsible AI has two major components that are somewhat independent. Uh, one, formulating testable requirements that capture stakeholder values, and two, finding TEV and V, I think I'm saying that correctly, uh, strategies for those requirements. Did I understand that right? Uh, like yeah, so, so test evaluation, validation, and verification um, is what that acronym is. Um, Yes and no. Um, so the first part, I think I would agree with that when we think about systems making ethical choices, in many cases, what we need is we need to have testable requirements that that capture shareholder values. Um, I, I think T, T and V um, is an important first part of, and it's a very natural place to start uh, with thinking about strategies for those requirements, but I don't think it's the only one. Um, I think we need to make sure that we've got appropriate strategies for what kinds of technology we build or put out for contract in the first place. Uh, we need appropriate strategies that can look at the training of the downstream um, uh, soldier who's tasked with this. I mean, so an example that uh, this is um, in part originally, it's inspired by a discussion of um, uh, of an example that Paul Shari, um, the one who, guy who wrote 3009 10 years ago, um, nine years ago, that, that Paul came up with, he said, you know, when he was first an Army Ranger, uh, what they did is they would, you know, they was deployed in Afghanistan. He said, he says, you know, what, what you did is you told the private, look, you have responsible for this tiny area. If somebody comes into this area and they're clearly a hostile, engage, but otherwise just you have this very small area. And the idea was that, you know, you didn't you didn't necessarily have people who were trained in how to think strategically about, for example, an entire mile long area of terrain. You gave people very small areas initially, and then it was only with experience that people would understand the tactical implications or strategic implications of doing other kinds of things. Well, one of the, the right now, an ongoing development project, I'm not saying anything classified, don't worry about that, um, but um, uh, an ongoing project is a goal um, of the US military is to have uh, semi-autonomous sensor systems so that you can have what sometimes is referred to as the tactical private. That you can have a single private just out of boot camp now have control of doing surveillance of a one, two mile stretch of front. Why? Because they've got a bunch of semi-autonomous drones, sensor drones that they can deploy and then they sit back with their essentially, you know, uh, interface that's giving them situational awareness of this whole space. Well, that's a really cool idea. The force multiplier possibilities are substantial, but you'd better make sure that that private fresh out of boot camp has actually been trained in how to think about the implications of their actions now at a much bigger scale. And so if, if it's really right that you don't want to trust someone fresh out of boot camp to think about that, 
but then you're going to give them sensors that are going to fail, that, that are going to give them the ability to have this kind of a large impact. So that's an example of where it's not just about the testing and validation and reliability. It's also about the training that you do of people who are given these technologies. It's about how you figure out which problems should be solved with technology in the first place. So it's, it's all through that pipeline, not just at testing eval. Okay. And it looks like we have one last question. Um, and it says, uh, did you approve of Jim Kirk cheating in the Kobayashi Maru? Um, so um, I think we're going to end on that one for the last question. Yeah, no, um, do I approve of it? Um, the professor in me is appalled by it because it had a particular pedagogical purpose and, and his cheating uh, uh, circumvented that. Uh, the technologist and ethicist in me thinks that it was brilliant and it's exactly why we have to be stunningly careful about how we deploy these systems um, in the real adversarial world. Because I guarantee you that the adversary is going to try to pull a Jim Kirk against our systems when we deploy them in the world. They're going to try to find uh, what are the rules this system obeys and how do I break the rules? How do I convince the system to do something that it was never designed to do? How do I change the physical environment by putting stickers on stop signs in ways that just, just change the game? Um, the system thinks it's playing Go, I'm, but actually the game is chess. You can be the best Go player in the world, but if you're playing chess, you're gonna lose pretty fast um, if, if you're trying to play it as if it's Go. So I actually agree with you that it's predicated on a very serious issue, which is, Computer systems, by and large, assume a fairly stable environment. And if there is um, one thing that battle spaces are not, it's stable. Uh, they change rapidly. They are incredibly dynamic. Uh, the rules, there aren't necessarily stable rules that, that hold, especially if you're dealing with, say, insurgents uh, who are going to be using every tactic uh, that they can think of. So. I think there's a very real worry there, and um, we have to think about how we want to respond ethically and um, and militarily to these possibilities. So thank you for raising it. So I think it's a it's a great question. We've had some excellent ones, and I think we're going to wrap up the uh, that with the last one there. Um, I want to thank you again for a fantastic presentation. I think you've sparked an excellent conversation. Um, I'm sure people will be talking about that this continually. Um, so I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing what comes, what or other conversations come out of this as well. Um, I'm just going to make a few announcements here. Um, and uh, once again, thank you, uh, Dr. Danks. Thank you so much for having me. This is, this has been a real, uh, a privilege and an honor to, to get to speak to you tonight. So thank you for the opportunity. Wonderful, thank you. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us tonight and we look forward to future online events with you. Um, our next lecture will take place on March 11th. We will live stream a lecture from Dr. Reed Bonadonna who will be talking about his work on leadership and the profession of arms in his presentation, How to Think Like an Officer, the Officer as Visionary. Dr. Bonadonna served in the Marine Corps for 20 years, has taught at the Marine Corps Command and Staff College as well as the US Mar Merchant Marine Academy, is senior fellow for the Carnegie Council 
Consult for Ethics in International Affairs and is the author of numerous books on the profession of arms. That lecture will be live streamed on, your, on our website on March 11th at 6.30 p.m. And you can find the streaming link on the event page as we approach the lecture date. Please keep an eye on our social media pages and the events tab on our website to learn more about our upcoming events. Once again, thank you and good evening. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA is an integral part of the U.S. Army War College and maintains the knowledge repositories that support scholarship and research about the U.S. Army and its operating environment. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about past and upcoming events. <laughs>